0: Welcome to Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Join me in welcoming my guests as we'll discuss the ins and outs of the healthcare landscape and examine what is really happening inside big healthcare. Today, we have a special guest, Mr. Tom Soleil, a respected healthcare data phenom, as well as a personal friend. If you're a healthcare professional or a technology enthusiast, this is the podcast for you. Join us in a conversation about one of my favorite subjects, information, and how it's used. In healthcare, there's an extreme amount of data collected. We will touch on how this data is underused and how artificial intelligence, machine learning, open ecosystems, and cross-platform access in healthcare will not only improve efficiencies, but also intuition. We discuss looking laterally at other industries and the need for forward-thinking, third-party healthcare companies to present future connectivity capabilities in a step up to the challenge. I will ask Tom about the process of obtaining a patient safety organization designation, what that means, and how a PSO is earned in the umbrella coverage that's extended to hospitals. I also want you to hear how this techie dad helped his daughter manage type 1 diabetes through gamified automation, and how this rolled over into Tom's everyday passion to improve the experience of the end user. Put the pencil and paper down for this episode, because it's all mind-blowing. you here to join us. Welcome again to Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Today, we have a special guest, someone who I think is going to shed some very important light and some very detailed information as to where healthcare is going unobstructedly. Mr. Tom Soleil.
1: Thanks, Scott, for having me. I appreciate it. A
0: couple things about you, Tom. Uh, We've crossed paths in uh, in past lives, past companies that we both worked for we 've seen each other around we've you know it's been a minute but we've seen each other around for a while it's good to be talking again and it's good to have you in this side of the of the conversation let people understand what you're seeing what you're doing you're dealing with the really aggressive technology forefront that's in front of us through artificial intelligence and machine learning and
1: yeah donpe oh, thanks I appreciate it and yeah it's been a while what have we been working together now for what a little bit over 10 12 years or so uh here and there across the country dotting you know this hospital and that uh, been a lot happening in the last decade as co- as far as artificial intelligence is concerned. Now we're looking at and artificial intelligence basically taking over a lot of parts of healthcare or being introduced in areas where we hadn't looked at it before. You know where we've been taking data and thinking, oh, well, this is great for the financial areas, but now we're looking at it more from uh, diagnostic and preventative care. Uh, mechanisms to allow for patients to do better and have, uh, you know, of course, better outcomes, which is, you know, of course, what we're all trying to uh, strive for.
0: So how long have you been in the healthcare marketplace and what have been the roles that you've served so far?
1: Well, I've been in the healthcare marketplace a little bit over 20 years. I've started as a network administrator for a large healthcare firm, a nationwide healthcare firm, actually, in uh, the Atlanta area, and then uh, moved to a multinational organization, worked as an engineering manager for, for them, dealing with specifically integration, data aggregation, and then for another company, uh, specifically in documentation and uh, information management. Uh, with those folks, and now, uh, you know, I'm doing more work in the analytics and AI operations side uh, of things. So, in the 20 years going from training in uh, data management and uh, informatics, directly into the you know, head of the of the beast here, where we're <laughs> we're looking at analytics and creating algorithms to determine outcomes or best outcomes and create decision making support systems. Uh, in the operating room and beyond, so it's ah uh, it's been a fun career and in running into you know great guys like you and and others along the way where we've had an opportunity to work together. you know we put together some fabulous projects we've done some really good things in hospitals, and you know hopefully we've helped to change the course of some lives along the way.
0: I remember first bumped into each other one of the big healthcare systems in New Jersey. we were doing an interoperative CT suite. I remember it was the first introduction to the the integration company you were working with then that had something pretty unique and and different to offer in the market. They have since been acquired by, oh gosh, who was it? I think it was with it Steris? Ah, No, I'm sorry. Olympus. Olympus acquired that company. (laughs) It's been a minute for sure, but it's been great. But I'll tell you what, I remember first talking to you on the phone. I'm, I'm trying to. Relic the being overwhelmed, but at the same time, like, okay, we got this because (laughs) all the information (laughs) you spit out within three minutes, which was absolutely pertinent to make sure that we we nailed it, it happened. And it was really easy to work with you based on how knowledgeable you were, how experienced you were, and how much of a go-getter because you actually believe and you have a passion for what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Having having the, well, we'd call it inside information on the hospitals, but having come from an informatics background inside of a hospital, it's always great to know what they expect and being prepared and understanding the the mindset uh, there. You know, it's a very conservative mindset inside of the hospitals you know, where protection of information and access to information for those who need it are paramount. And understanding that going in, it, it helps tremendously to move your projects forward. You know, absolutely.
0: So you have a lot of tie-ins with the healthcare marketplace from a personal experience, we know you're an advocate for those who have diabetes. We know that your daughter has diabetes, and I, I know you're doing a lot of work or caught a light different um, milestones within the disease itself. So, when you talk about that a little bit,
1: yeah, sure. So, yeah, my daughter has uh, type one diabetes. She was diagnosed five years ago, and you know, this uh, past September was her five year "quote unquote" anniversary as they call it, when she was diagnosed. Oh, wow. It was a shock. It was a tremendous shock. No one on either side of the family had or we've ever been exposed to type 1 diabetes. And sure, you know you have a relative here and there that may have experienced type 2 diabetes either for a time or had lived with it uh, for for a bit, but this was something entirely new and completely different. Being an autoimmune disease, Uh, she essentially had her pancreas or a portion of her pancreas overwhelmed by an autoimmune response, essentially killing all of her beta cells. And she's no longer able to produce insulin. And at the time, well, what does that mean? Well, they tell us she's insulin dependent and we're going to have to give her shots and we're going to have to monitor her blood sugar several times a day and she's going to have to do this and that. And when me being a tech head, or, I just delved directly into it and said, oh, well, how can we automate this? And if, <laughs> if there is a time, if there's a time to be uh, a diabetic or be diagnosed as a diabetic, there's probably no better time. Because the systems that are in place and, you know, it's not something that you wish on anyone or that you ever want to, you know, have happen to your child. But right now there are so many tools and there are so many ways to help your child uh, thrive uh, with with this disease. My daughter dances. My daughter swims. My daughter runs. My daughter weight lifts. My daughter is active. You know, I go to sleep at night knowing that she's going to wake up in the morning and she's going to be fine because of the monitoring systems that we have. And it's not just from the companies that are putting them out, whether it's a uh, continuous glucose monitor or the pumps that she's on, but there is a, an entire host of folks out there. There are just legions of people who are working on artificial intelligence and open source programming to provide a, a, an artificial pancreas. know out there so my daughter is essentially walking around with an electronic gadget called a link that is working for her and it automates the process so she thinks less about it every day fantastic that's a fantastic thing and all of that was done by a group of scientists a group of data scientists a group of networking folks of people some application folks taking raspberry pi essentially type devices Programming them with an algorithm, talking to the devices that are out there on the market space and saying, okay, hey, we can help these be better. And while those companies are working to that end, we did it first as a community. And that's amazing. That device
0: is amazing. That Raspberry Pi, I don't know how many stories I read and all the articles that I read, independent OSs you can build off of that one chip. It's unreal.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And for $35. Essentially, what's $35 you can take and you can automate your entire home, you can automate your car, you can do... uh, Well, you can be a pancreas. For the Riley link to connect to uh, our CGM and to the pump, the CGM and the pump are all Bluetooth. They're low... um, low intensity frequency devices. So they have to be relatively close to one another. But this thing at 35 bucks can be programmed with a uh, operating system. And then the algorithm, they talk to each other. Once they're connected, we create an app for it. And on your iPhone, you can control the system. Now, of course, we are doing this (laughs) completely outside of the intended use of the systems. I want to say that uh, number one. Number two is we take full responsibility for what happens with those systems. So it's not accredited by the FDA. There's no certification on it. It is just something that we are doing ourselves. But there's an entire uh, host of research out there. And, of course, the, the companies uh, that are providing CGMs and pumps are working with the open source community at the same time to bring those algorithms and uh, those systems into their, you know, into their products. It's really cool.
0: I have to ask, so did you help shape how this looks, functions, feels? Do you have anything to do with that?
1: (laughs) I I have contributed comments and some suggestions, but not necessarily been involved in any of the direct programming. A lot of these things were happening well before my daughter was diagnosed. And as far as being on the road there, it, it has just been a few comments here and there on their uh, website and in the forums about, hey, we can do this, or here's a suggestion for a look to make it easier on end users. Because one of my passions is it, it, we do a lot of complicated work. Our, our That's an understatement. Whether, yeah, <laughs> indeed. So we, we're, we're out there every day. And if you can reduce a medical system to two buttons, with all the complex functions that it accomplishes, and you can make it have two buttons and it's easy for someone to turn on and manipulate, it, that is a phenomenal task. And if they're not complaining, it's not malfunctioning, there's no, you know, no additional issues there. We have effectively transformed you know, a patient procedure somehow. And those are the things that we work on. I have a tremendous passion for customer service and for what the end user experience is at the end of the day security, whether, whether it's uh, you know securing a device, uh, logging into a device, having access to an interface, et cetera. If you can't use the device or if you don't look at it and within two or three minutes, it's intuitive to you. Sure, it's not going to un- unveil everything that it does. But if you can't walk up to it and like your iPhone or your Android phone, hey, I know how to get to my mail. I know how to get to my phone application. I know how to get to my messages and I want to play a game. You can do that. If you can't walk up to a system in a medical uh, situation and be able to do something similar, you've missed the mark. You've over-engineered yeah. your product. You haven't done right by your clients, by your end users, and you know those are the things that I've suggested as far as the programs are concerned. I'd it, say that's probably
0: the- conservatively about fifty percent of the products in there on the market right now. Would you agree?
1: Oh, indeed. At indeed. least, and you think and so? Going back to diabetes, we're talking about kids, right? We're talking about kids that don't have engineering degrees. Sure, they adapt to interfaces rather quickly, but the less complicated they are, and if you gamify them a little, bright colors, uh, instant rewards, you thank you for you know bolusing, those sorts of things, they go a long way to contributing to good habits. You know, for folks who really, you know, at, at their age, I mean, my daughter was 10 years old, but there are kids that are, you know, they're, they're babies, they're infants, or they're six or seven years old. They don't understand what's going on. And parents trying to teach them these complicated interfaces on their devices, it's 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 unconscionable that we would do that too.
0: You and I both are in the, the same realm of healthcare data and IT and everything that's going to follow up. We're about to talk about machine learning. The robots are coming, man. It's terminated day, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, artificial Art. intelligence, oh. all the data, the matrix. Yeah. We can act like Neo and do an end degree backbend. What do you think this overall impact is going to bring? I mean, AI and machine learning and the data aggregation just from the diabetes standpoint and then rolled into full healthcare. I mean, where do you think it's going to start, like truly start from? What is it? Uh, and here's a, just a slew of questions, because I know originally when I was like, okay, machine learning, okay, it has to be a computer. Uh, I'm yeah. sure it has to be programmed. But if you understand the true sense of it, true machine learning is self-programming. I mean, no human interaction. Where are we going? Tell us. Because some people may be scared. And I know that in healthcare right now, it, it's either one way or the other at the moment, in in my opinion some are all for it because they know they can have a chance to separate themselves in the marketplace and make it the impact that they hospitals always should have, or they're scared out of the wits. And they're like, absolutely not.
1: Well, uh, you know, I think you need to take it in, you need to, you need to ingest the information as far as AI is concerned, you know, from a, let's just say, let's segregate it into uh, diabetes is a chronic illness. When you're diagnosed with it, you, there's a honeymoon period where your pancreas may or may not still be producing insulin, and then you, you're reduced. So let's say you have, uh, you, you're diagnosed with sleep apnea or you're diagnosed with some other long-term disease, asthma, you know, something to that effect, where you have to be under a certain amount of controls. So you're going to a physician every three months, so whether you're, you're going to a specialist, an endocrinologist, an asthma specialist, you know, an, an allergy specialist, et cetera, and what tools are they actually using to track you? Before, they weren't tracking you with much. You come in, you have your, uh, your, your, your basic vitals, uh, pulled they weigh you they take your blood pressure you go in for a spirometry a sp- i'm sorry spirometry however it's called <laughs> all right. of a sudden i'm forgetting my my asthma terms. <laughs> yes you, you go in and you blow and you see what's happening And it, it, okay so there's those are your data points well today we're tracking constantly and tracking constantly means i can adjust your medications i can adjust your your intake automatically like with my daughter's device, if she is exercising and the algorithm sees that her, her glucose levels are going down, it will suspend delivering insulin to her, just sure. like your pancreas would do and say, okay, well, you're exercising. We're going to pump more glucose into you, and you know, it'll alert to her and say, hey, you should have some candy or you should have some type of glucose, carbohydrate in your system right now so that you can offset this exercise that you're doing because we see that you're starting to go down. And when it sees that you're going down really quickly, it it can alert you and tell you, hey, you really need to have something or you need to quit that physical activity for the moment until you can level yourself out so that you don't get down to a point where you can't function anymore. And the same can be said for people who are on CPAPs, BiPAPs, et cetera. Now you've got smart devices who are giving feedback to their clinicians and the clinicians will uh, download new programs to their devices and help them sleep better at night so there are less adverse effects from their conditions. So why would I be scared of that? You know, not like, it's not like we're at the point where you're going to go to the hospital and you're going to be talking to a robot tomorrow. We may eventually get to that and we may get used to seeing that. But today, where the absolute gains are, are in the little things that we do. If I can track with my watch or I can track with a, another monitoring device you know my condition, and it gives constant feedback to my clinicians and my clinicians call me, that saves me an extra trip to the hospital. It saves yeah. me an extra trip to my doctor's office, and they – are updating the program and alerting me to any changes, and it's like, okay, well, you don't have to be on so much medication anymore. Well, would you not agree that perhaps less medication may be better in the long? That's
0: where I see the the biggest value right there is the efficiencies of yeah. the data through an automation system. Even if it stops or reduces two appointments, we can get to the answers a little bit faster. I and mean, this this is the simplest form of the discussion. But mm-hmm. how many more people can get in to go see that doctor? Because right now we both know that the doctors have, they're not, they're not very welcoming to their job anymore as far as they're like, hey, don't come into the field. You're going to be stressed out. I uh, did an 88% disapproval rating of the field according to the latest studies okay. that were out there. Keep the people who wanted to, to practice in medicine as they were, and I'm just keep trying to keep it in very layman's terms, but keep okay. them in a positive manner so they can actually be very productive and have a good work-life balance. That's where I see the benefits. I, I don't look at it as Again, all kidding aside, the robot to come and watch out, (laughs) right? (laughs) But if we can use that for the efficiencies that it's designed for, because I know, for example, in my own home, I use the Google IOT Nest products, okay, for the Mm -hmm. ecosystem. You know, turn the lights on, turn the lights off. I may be across the rooms. That's going to save me a step so I can do something else as, as well. I know it also spawns a different commercial, or uh, commercial, excuse me, conversation, where how many things you need to do at once. Relax a little bit. Don't be so anxious. It's not. If something's across the room, or even the other day when I was driving home, I forgot to turn the lights on. I was hey. able to turn the lights on, so my dogs wouldn't be in the dark. It's just convenient. And it makes it. It's a fail safe almost. And it's, it's just another layer of okay, what do we have in front of us? I have a question for you. Uh, sure. Actually, I'm, I'm going to make a comment towards you. So I was in a meeting the other day and in the meeting and we were sitting with a pretty high level administrator. And what I didn't know, this per- well, what I did know was this person was a CEO, great guy, uh, very open, early adopter. What I didn't know was that 10 years earlier, he had been a CIO for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So right at the inception of merger uh, and merger of uh, Cerner and Epic, he said, is so." we, we started talking about data. And machine learning is part of the conversation. He came back and he's like, we have so much data point now through Cerner and Epic that we don't even know what to do with it. How do you navigate a conversation like that? What what are they missing out of the boat? Because my, my answer back was, all right, well, where's your starting point? What are you trying to accomplish now with the information that you know? And I think it was too much information overwhelmed type scenario. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing in that same regard?
1: Well, I see the same thing they see. And so 10 years ago, we started, and actually longer, further further back, we started. Well, that's when the mandate was. 10
0: years ago was the mandate for the Cerner and Epic. So that's when right. no one really knew what was there. Then when they started getting the information back, they're like, oh, we didn't know this,
1: right? Right. But we had those programs and we had those systems in hospitals long before that. And we'd been collecting a lot of the data points. And we were using various types of analytic systems to tease out certain information. So let's think back to the nineties when managed healthcare or late eighties, early nineties, managed healthcare is going to take over the world. We're all going to be part of some HMO somewhere. Now someone says HMO, it's a bad thing, right? People right. think of HMOs and wow, they're like, no, there's no way I'm going to be a part of that. But guess what? We're all part of value-based healthcare now and value-based healthcare is pretty much the same as the HMO. We can, we, we can niggle on the ideas you know, that bind the two. But essentially, if we're going to look at care as here's a resource that we have, here's how we're going to spend our time and our efforts on it. And here's what we expect the outcomes to be. And this is how we're going to pay. Well, how are we going to do all that? We have all this information and we need to figure out what to do with it to make managed care, value-based care actually work. You know, we've been collecting this data for years. Quick analogy, and this this kind of dates me, but we've been putting fiber down in the country for years. And there's lots and lots of dark fiber all over the place. There's lots of infrastructure that we built for communication between systems, whether it's university systems, health healthcare systems, cable systems, television, etc. We have built it. In, in, just an incredible amount of resources to be able to deliver content from point A to point B, but we have never turned it on. So mm-hmm. we've collected a lot of data for a long time, and we've never used it. You know, when you, we're we're all in awe of these longitudinal studies that say, oh, we took fifty thousand cases. And we analyzed the outcomes of these patients and we said, okay, here's, you know, here's outcome A, here's outcome B, and here's outcome C. And here's how we determined that using all these cases that we collected. There's still more to do because there's still more information there. And there's still information that we could collect that we don't collect that we could be using to better outcomes for patients every day, but we're just not collecting. them. We're not bold enough to collect and we really need to get over that.
0: For sure. As far as the AI and the machine learning, as far as pulling the, well, creating the automation to pull the data that's needed, what do you think are the top three things that healthcare administrators or medical facility owners need, don't know what they have in front of them that they could use to make themselves more efficient, a better care provider, and more profitable?
1: Well, first of all, the medical device manufacturers need to open up their system. There are too many closed systems out there.
0: I I think that we don't have enough early adopters, personally, uh, in the market right now. I think they're afraid. The
1: the large manufacturers who are out there that create these closed ecosystems need to stop. They need to stop. They are collecting information, and it's disappearing in Ether. Or actually, they're not even collecting the information. It's in their systems, and it, it essentially sits wherever this cart is or where that device is. And if it gets anywhere, well, good luck. Non standard formats. We have an entire organ, we have several organizations actually uh, dedicated to standardization of information across medical platforms. And while they pay lip service to it, they rarely, if ever, provide the information from their systems or allow for cross platform access to the information from their systems. That's a mm-hmm. sad thing. So that's right. number one, right? So if you're a medical device manufacturer out there listening to those podcasts, Stop what you're doing. Get into an open source system or get into an open exchange of information system. Talk to why C. do you think on. they're doing talk, that? Talk talk to to what's the restriction? Oh, it's, it's market share. It's, it's, mar- it's 100% market share. I mean, we know this. You and I worked in the same business with the same companies. We, we know why they do it. It's all about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We want to place whatever information on someone else. And the responsibility for this is us. You know, not us as you and I, but it's on those corporations. We want you to be dependent upon us, and I get it. That's good business, but it it doesn't necessarily translate into better patient outcome. You build great devices. You all build wonderful, great devices. They all have a place, but they should all also be able to release the data that they capture, whether it's video data, it's telemetric data. Uh, coming from your systems, Mm. all of that should be free to move from your device into a centralized repository so that we have a more complete black box type of information or a set of information from a particular case. Regardless of how minor they may think it is or anyone who's making a medical device thinks it is, it's unconscionable that you would just let it sit in your system and do nothing.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because when you and I first hooked up again out in Chicago, Mm -hmm. I remember you said data should be free. Data needs to be free. That's, uh, That's a huge point. Here's something that I would like to just kind of amplify that a little bit. If you have the behemoths of Microsoft and Google and I'm sure you Ooh. saw this tech that was just released this past week where it's an Android platform for the OS, Microsoft's hardware for that handheld foldable duo phone that they they released. Yep. If those two companies at the size of they are on a global aspect can communicate, integrate, and work together, there's no reason why these medical companies can't or shouldn't. At the same time,
1: I completely agree. And you look at other companies who are trying to open, liberate, create more interactive and cohesive databases of information so that you as an individual healthcare owner, because you should be owning your data, Walmart's doing it or trying to do it. Amazon is trying to do it. They, you know, Microsoft was, of course, was, was part of that consortium trying to do it. And if, if people would just, I say people, if, if we would just demand it and stand up and say, look, my medical data is my medical data. It doesn't belong to you. I shouldn't have to pay what right now the government mandates that if I wanted to have an electronic record or a paper record of my encounters with doctors, I have to pay them $6.50 for every one of the encounters. And then I have to take everything, put it into spreadsheets and make it uh, you know, into a cohesive uh, bit of information that I can give to the next physician or practice group that I'm visiting you know, over this. That, that's ridiculous. That's dysfunctional. But that is how we operate. And that is part of the larger problem we have with data inside of hospitals when it comes to the individual patient. You know, as a hospital, we think, well, we've got all the data in the world. But the reality is all the data in the world doesn't amount to a hill of beans if my daughter, your sister, my mother, or my aunt or someone else is sick and they can't get a hold of their information. And the, the physicians who are trying to, to interact with her, or, or him trying to make them better can't get a complete picture because the data is sequestered in some obscure database that no one can penetrate because well it's proprietary and we own it and well you know it's just how we do business Well, i can think of words to use for just what that is
0: <laughs> yeah one of the uh oh, we were just sitting down with a, with a few friends and uh they'll make it a comment like oh you're an android user said yeah and I always refer back to those devices. Everyone's using a device at some point. It's either a Microsoft, Mm -hmm. an Android, or an an Apple. And they said, but if you're an Android, why do you have an iPad in front of you? I said, well, I mean, I did make a flip three or four months ago. And they said, well, why? It's just, I said, you kidding me that you, you don't like Apple. I said, I don't. I said, I truly, I think I have a better resource than an Android or a Windows device. But, if you ask the reason why, is is for one reason. They're like, well, why is that? I said, well, actually, two. Um, but the the primary is because the iPad now utilizes USB-C, mm-hmm. and they came back and they said, what's that? I said, well, USB-C is a universal interface that allows cross information of information. Oh. I could plug that iPad into my phone, or that iPad into my, which is an Android device, or into my mm-hmm. my desktop, which is the PC Windows based. And now they can bi-directionally communicate. And she's like, they, they couldn't do that before? I said, no, I, they, they couldn't do that before at all with the lightning port. They, they could to a certain degree, but it wasn't all open. I said, oh, I said, now I can actually download something. <laughs> she said, right. right. I said, I can actually download a PDF and attach it to a mail file, just like every other computer and interface I'm used to. And when you think of the simplicity of that and the sandbox that Apple has been playing in, and the phones are actually still playing and not just the tablets, that's the type of scenario that you're talking about. You have to go through three or four or five different steps with a phone because they're still using that lightning connector. Right. Versus with the iPad, I can now directly download and then use a simple mail application to attach and release. And that's it. Right. And that's in, the same thing that- these medical companies need to do.
1: Right. And that goes to interoperability. Right. We talked about that when we first started the conversation. Interoperability, interoperability and end user satisfaction are two things that make or break companies. I can get you to buy into my ecosystem, then obviously, you know, I'm going to try to lock out other business. But OK, I've got other practice groups who are going to use other equipment. Now I have to have experts and an entire ecosystem to support those people. And it doesn't necessarily interact with the information that they're the information that they're generating doesn't interact with the you know, dominant ecosystem that I have. It, sure, they all pull into the EMR, but they don't all pull everything into the EMR. What key data are we losing if you're not pulling everything? The closer we get to true interoperability and having capabilities built into our systems that allow for us to exchange all of the information, not just some of the information, what I think may be relevant, what this company thinks may be relevant, et cetera, is really where we need to be. Information, this type of information, it's not, you know, trademark this or that or whatever, you know, it makes up the secret sauce, but the information that is determinant of the patient's outcome or could determine a better outcome for the patient, should be free. If your device is collecting and generating information that says this patient was under distress or this patient did well during this portion of the procedure because these conditions were being met and you were analyzing that, then why isn't that going into a larger record? Why are you holding that information back?
0: Yeah, it's a shame actually that it's doing that. Let me ask you this. We're both pretty deep into the healthcare market. We know a lot of different people and a lot of different positions and roles and a lot of different companies. Okay. So in short, we've been around the block. What do you see as new trends, new topics, IOT base? I, I know I, I have a lot of friends over at GE and I know for a fact that they just launched the new AI platform in the mammogram studies. I'm not saying that that's what it is. What they're saying is, Hey, they're highlighting that Scan saying this needs to be reviewed because we believe we found X. What do you find on your end with new trends, topics, discussion points? Does it emerge everything that we're talking about as far as interoperability, back and forth with each other, and bi-directional bi- communications?
1: Well, there's a huge buildup right now in cloud services for hospitals, cloud to IoT in hospitals and cloud security for- Here's what I
0: think. It's out of warfare at the moment, uh, literally. It, <laughs> it, uh, would you agree? I mean, everyone who's yes. trying to control the AWS-type market space, the IoT-type market space, what 5G is going to do for healthcare, who's going to mm-hmm. control the patents for artificial intelligence, even if I wasn't trying to research and educate myself mm-hmm. on those, those topic points, that's all I'm seeing anyways.
1: Well, I I would agree with that. There's a ton of folks that are trying to control the conversation uh, there. And we can look to other uh, market spaces, other industries that have already embraced this type of automation, this type of artificial intelligence, and have put it in place and take lessons. You you look at automation for uh, mechanical systems where they're building tools, building, uh, whether it's solar panels, cars engines, et cetera, anywhere where you have automation and robotics in place, and then an artificial intelligence tool that's grading efficiencies, changing, and helping to adapt the systems to be more efficient, we should be looking to them because they're already there. They have been doing it for years and they have a, an extensive amount of an extensive amount of experience uh, in that area. And while a lot of the healthcare companies that are coming out are trying to forge new path they're not necessarily looking laterally and saying, okay hey those people have already done this before they've created these tools why are we not learning from some of the lessons that they have gone through and bringing them into the healthcare space for you know while patients are different from the machines, the some of the lessons that they glean from the information that they're uh, pulling pulling down and uh, from IOT devices. Let's say IoT device that my daughter is wearing on her right now. If I pull up the application on my watch and I can see that she is at 92 and steady for her, her glucose right now, she is at range. She is in range for an average person right now who is probably, let's see, what time is it? Oh, yeah, it's middle of the afternoon. She's out with friends. She's got to be doing something at, uh, you know, the mall. And those types of, the, the capability of, be, of being able to reach down into those devices, pull out that information and not disrupt what my patient is doing, my daughter, is excellent, right? I can review with her when I get back home on Wednesday, everything that's going on for the week and talk about her homework, talk about her dance team, talk about swimming In two seconds on medical and say, okay, hun. hon. Uh, looks like we probably need to make some adjustments to your program so that you don't have to worry about that weightlifting class you're taking right now. That
0: That's what makes you smile right there is the automation and you're able to review it and not spend a week or days, whatever right. valuable time they may have in between for just your general connecting with you know someone who you love. And you're able just to kind of glance over it and make adjustments because all the hard work has been done. In front of you. Right,
1: and you look at you look at large companies like GE and you look at Siemens. They don't just do medical. You know, they're just not in healthcare. Oh, yeah. They work in build. They work in building automation. They build uh, jet engines. They do all kinds of things, and they have been experimenting in dozens of areas. You know, outside of the healthcare industry, with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, with um, you know a- analytics, and they have taken in their processes, whether it's from CT. Uh, other types of fluoroscopy and allowed for, you know, experimentation and they're generating really, really good results. They're yep. generating results that we probably would not have even thought possible.
0: You're absolutely correct. And one of the trends that I see, and it's not so much in healthcare, it's somewhat outside the lines of healthcare, but I have a, a couple of close friends and right now they have a, a couple of patents and they are working with some of the big boy uh, companies, Dell, IBM, Microsoft, the patent control again to trying to navigate that conversation a little bit but they're working on weather tech and they're working on weather tech as far as the automated automation of cars in bad weather and how to predict weather patterns to our devices so we can actually give better information in real time versus mm-hmm. now i live in florida the weatherman says five six days in between or ahead of schedule that the hurricane's coming and then, oh, it's shifting this way, shifting that, and they don't really know where it's going. All that I see with some of the technology that they're bringing really help navigate that whole discussion. Bringing that over back to healthcare, do you think that they're going slow on purpose because they're trying to mitigate any kind of high intent risk or frivolous risk that they can get sued over?
1: So, well, of course. It, it, look, we're talking about biological systems the people. <laughs> yep. So every time you talk about people, you have to be careful when you're when you're applying new technology to to people. You know, it was a revolution when the iPhone came out. It's now everything is a smartphone. We used to have feature phones, we used to have flip phones, and you know, of course we're going back to foldable clamshell, I guess all touchscreen type phones soon again. So what was old was new, but there is a progression to all of it where we have to be cautious with how we provide information to people. Let's, let's be honest. And I hate to say this to, to everyone, but I'm sure other people have, we're not very educated when it comes to healthcare. If you ask anyone out there, so I've got a graduating, a graduating team, first year college freshman, you know, in school, and I'm a healthcare professional. I've been in healthcare my entire career. My son, who doesn't necessarily uh, care one bit about me being in healthcare, you know, other than, hey, I'm going to college and here's what my dad does. And it's really cool if he's interested in something else. If he has to go to the doctor, he always calls and asks questions. And while I've tried to educate him and made him you know, aware of the things that he needs to be whenever he goes to a doctor's appointment, an eye doctor's appointment, or just for a regular checkup, it takes a minute. And we have an entire population that's like that. If I'm going to move forward with artificial intelligence, and I'm going to tell you that your application on your phone that we just downloaded—and you know, what's what's the, the 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 general joke on the internet, right? Our iPhones are smarter than what sent the space shuttle into uh, you know into orbit. And while that might be true, that
0: was the first yeah. iPhone too, by the way, right? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> of course. So oh, at the first a yeah, decade ago. The first iPhone. Our current iPhones are thousands of times smarter. Than that, with the neurochips and everything else it has. but I will believe it that I was playing candy crush and I got you know a couple of million points on one level versus, hey, it's telling me I should probably get up and go for a walk because it would help to reduce my blood pressure. We need to educate folks. On yeah. that, And have them take th- that advice serious. So if programs like uh, Lark or uh, Rally or others that are out there to help you with your wellness and tell you, hey, you should probably take 10 minutes right now to step away from your desk and go for a quick walk. Just stand up, go downstairs, yeah. grab some water, go outside for a minute, walk around the parking lot. It, it, you will be much better for this if you do it. Well, no, I'm not going to do that because, well, you know, this program's not right. But when it dings and tells me that I have to go and play this game or Words with Friends is active or something to that effect, yeah, I'm I'm all for it. You know, so there's a there's a lot of trust that we have to rebuild with people out there so that the programs that we're using and the information that we're giving them is supported by what they see as differences in their health. I agree. So So,
0: I I think the two things in schools they should be teaching is one. Financial health, I think that's mm-hmm. would be for anybody. And then two, I, I know they have phys- physical education, and but really, what's going on? Breaking down like blood work first, I think blood tells a lot and gets people interested. Mm-hmm. If you see your your ranges either below or above where your norm should be, then those are red flags in either direction of that, whether it's low or high. And it's like, right. oh, well, where should it be? It, it just asks a normal question: Where should it be, and why? That's the first question. The second question would be, what is that, and what's that responsible for? Yeah, exactly. Far, right. Oh, I don't. I don't want that. And again, I'm keeping things very, very simple. If someone doesn't understand it, you need to keep it that simple so it doesn't make it scary to them. At the same that's a lot of what people will hesitate to, or at least try to move away from, versus gravitate towards it because they just simply don't understand. Like, well, I don't understand. That. I'm not going to bother with it. Right.
1: Sure. Well, when you're looking at data informatics or you're looking at analytics, what's, what's the, greatest analytic? the, the greatest part of analytics? The greatest part of analytics tools is the visualization of the information there. Who wants to look at a spreadsheet? Who wants to look at the graphs that they give us now? If I log into my portal uh, for my my primary physician, so my doctor of internal medicine, their facility has a portal. And when I log into it after my physical, I can see everything. Well, I understand what's in there because this is what my job is. I see this a lot. I, am I a medical professional? Do I have a medical degree? No, but I do this all the time. So I see what it is. I know what's in range. I know what's not. But if I'm giving it to my wife who works in the legal profession, she looks at it and it's like, well, that's just a chart. I'm not sure what to make of all this. And will they sit down and explain it to me? Well, they shouldn't have to. They should put it into or they should represent the information in a manner that is acceptable to an end user so that they can make informed decisions. How about a graph? How about a chart? We have colors for everything: green, yellow, red. Green, good. Yellow, you could be in danger. Red, you definitely need to avoid this. And then, when I click on it, maybe some information about what I should change. What are the recommendations that are there? But those are the reports we get. That's not what informatics looks like, or that's not what informatics looks like for end users in healthcare. From Epic My Portal, or it's from Provation or from any, well, not Provation, but uh, oh, God, Athena Health or any of the other companies that are doing this stuff, none of it looks that way. The only one that I've seen that's actually been useful is Kaiser. And even that, it begs for better, <laughs> it just begs for a better representation so people would use it effectively.
0: One of the limitations with everything that you're talking about is security, and data breaches, and your your personal information getting out there, yeah, it, it's I don't want to say it's inevitable, but we've seen Apple, we've seen Google, we've seen Microsoft. Again, those are the three big behemoths out there that are really navigating our communications through electronics. Uh-huh. So if they're getting breached or attempt to get breached on, uh, what about the small mom-and-pop hospital, the local regional, or I mean, we all saw the ransomware? Couple years ago Mm -hmm. in 2017. Sure. What things can we avoid? What can we do? How can we try to protect the data? And I know it's standard keeping up with the PCs and and the 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 software patches, keeping the hardware fresh and updated. Is it really that risky, or should everyone just put it out to a web space server so it has to hit at a grander level?
1: Well, I okay, security is paramount for all this information. So PHI, patient health information it, it, by law it needs to be secured and there's a minimum level of security that needs to be applied you know to it and of course our devices now all of our handheld devices whether they're phones tablets uh you know laptops they they have some level of security built into them and what i recommend for folks and, and people in general Two-factor authentication. When you log into a site, let it send you a code. If it sends you the code, you get it. You plug it into the site. You know, you're done. Is that 100% secure? No, it's not. Security is never going to be 100%. There's always a smarter, you know, person out there, group, whatever, looking at attack vectors and vulnerabilities of systems and trying to get into them. You can't. Get away from that. There's always somebody trying to look in, but you can protect yourself as best you can by following a few very simple recommendations. Don't share your passwords. Make sure your passwords are strong. And that would be, you know, capital letters, some uh, characters in random order, and some numbers uh, in them uh, of a certain length. Uh, I personally use 15 character passwords, but I- I'm me, I guess. Yeah. Two-step sure. authentication is there. Uh, you know, there there are ways to do that. But you know, from a security standpoint for your information, the hospitals are attacked always, and it doesn't matter who they are. You can be the big behemoths out there, the the Mayos, the Clevelands, the Baptist Health, the Catholic Health Care's, and Dignity Health, or whatever. You could be any of those big healthcare organizations you're getting people are trying to hack you the regional hospital the one you know sole hospital in a, a rural region bites up They're being uh, there there are people trying to hack them there's no way of getting around it you right now during this conversation and i someone is trying to hack us someone is trying to get into one of our systems and our systems are just telling them you know no because we have adequate security is it the best security right now I don't know I can't say but we are trying our best to make sure that these things aren't happening the reality or the ultimate reality for security you know in for us as individuals is to make sure that our connectivity to those systems is Flexible for us as end users, but it also has a, a, you know certain parameters associated with it. Again, long passwords and two two factor authentication. That's th- those are a must. And then from an organizational standpoint, there's a meeting happening next week in Boston on medical device security. So there's legacy medical device security and there's new medical device security. So post you know pre five years ago, pre seven years ago, uh, devices that were put out didn't necessarily have uh, you know while they were using embedded systems or Proprietary OSs to run them. Uh, they weren't necessarily connected to the network. Now they're being connected to the network using third-party devices, and those devices may not, may or may not be secure. Ransomware, Windows Seven. There's still devices out there running Windows Seven. Still need mm-hmm. to be patched, updated, and are replaced. And they are being done by certain hospitals or by, by hospitals in general. Windows 10, security patches, making sure that there's no attack vectors associated with them, encryption TPM on hard drive. If they get removed from a facility, there's no way for someone to get into them. Uh, you know, other than knowing what the master passwords are, which are controlled by IT, etc. Yeah, absolutely. They're all there. Cloud services, number one way for you right now to be as secure as you possibly can. And I say that knowing right now now that with healthcare and security of of information, when you get into the cloud and you're in your VPC, you are 100% in control of all of your access management. And access management can be as simple as I'm letting a patient in or I'm letting a group of physicians in to look at the information and I log, trace, remove, turn off (laughs) access to, you know, et cetera, almost instantly as I need to. Uh, for, for systems. And I can copy across platforms, I can respawn, I can do a bunch of things that I can't normally do inside of, of data centers, which, you know, we, we've been able to accomplish some of those tasks, but now having this massive power in cloud computing and the ability to move data from one, uh, from one facility to another, turn off access uh, you know, for a certain group of users, certain facilities, certain uh, you know countries, even I can say I don't want any access for X country. You know, right. if it's coming in through this, even detecting through VPN. You know, it's amazing some of the things that we can do for for systems to to help secure them. Right now, yeah, security is a, security, and what what's being done in the area is is absolutely amazing.
0: My vision when you go back to. Just data across the board. Okay. So whether it's through machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, retrieve data from from patients. When do you think or do you think we will ever as a healthcare system and a society have every piece of integration and compatibility, cross-compatibility between our devices and interoperability and bidirectional comm happen do you think it's going to happen in 10 years 12 years and here's why i asked that question 2g came out it was there for a little while 3g it was there for a little bit longer because there was more systems they had to put in place and and, uh, more of a backbone robust system 4g came out and i equate ai and data today to 5g we it's there and it's there in pockets in a specifically place to see how it's going to run and where the trouble spots are going to be, but five G is really not going to make an impact for at least I would say let's say year six before it really makes that impact. It, it's probably going to have well, we know it's going to have milestone points within its implementation plans at year three, year four, but I really don't think it's going to hit market like it really could at like to like year five or six.
1: No, oh, I think you're. I, you know, I think you're right about the expand the expansion into 5G from a connectivity standpoint. Now, being able to have those speeds, that type of interconnectivity between devices, and this is just in general, not necessarily specific to medical, but the the capability of essentially acting as though I were at home are uh, we're in an enterprise system where I, if I wanted to communicate with a computer from my computer to another computer that is you know on campus, maybe one or two miles away, and it's instantaneous and it feels as though I, I'm doing it real time. Sure. A- absolutely. Five g is going to open up a lot of possibilities there. But from a medical device response capability, you are talking about an industry that moves slow uh uh-huh. it's very cons- <laughs> it's very conservative so if, right. if, if if you were to grade uh computer systems inside of a a, a hospital uh that you're walking into you can guarantee yourself you're going to be 3 or 4 years behind from a technological standpoint for every desktop that's there now while the data center may be up to date and the delivery methodology of getting information from you know from the core out to uh the edge is brilliant but the endpoints are are well let's just say Behind a a bit, think of the medical devices that are in the facility. You and I have walked into facilities where they're using equipment that is seven years, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years old. And it's not because they didn't want to upgrade it or they didn't have the money to upgrade it, it's because it worked and it worked really, really well. And the new Mm -hmm. system that replaced it didn't necessarily bring any advantages you know, to the procedure that they were providing or to the to the process. If we're hanging on to a lot of these legacy devices and we're not providing ways to connect to those or the new devices that are coming in don't connect to the future or aren't looking to the future for connectivity, how do we get there? You know, how do we really get there? The forward thinking company that are providing that type of connectivity are data companies. They're not necessarily medical device companies. Maybe they're home health medical device companies because you see there's a large market space for it, whether it's a watch a monitoring system, a blood pressure cuff, someplace where you can you know, do a quick blood draw or have a blood sample taken and then report it up to the cloud so that your provider can take a look at it. Sure, those devices will get there. But what are we looking at when it comes to CT? When we're looking at uh, general fluoroscopy or we're looking at endoscopy, uh, bariatric suite, where are we looking at the connectivity? Yeah. Do, you, do you see a bed, light or table company? doing anything that, oh, well, they provide tablets for controlling their devices, but those tablets are all closed loop. Telemetry, am I actually getting from any of these devices to attach harmoniously to the quote-unquote black box we mentioned earlier? They're just not there because they're not thinking about it. It's not about control. It's just about data.
0: That's what I'm finding with the companies that I'm reading about and looking at and having discussions with the people that I know within the industry. Everyone's developing their own AI platform. My first question is, Who are you communicating with outside of your platform? Do you have an open API? How are you interconnecting Mm -hmm. with different devices? How are you allowing that data to be aggregated with other pieces of data? And let's make data real for a second. Side effects with different medications, with radiation, or if someone's wearing a radiation tab, et cetera. If there's an RFID tag and someone's not properly lead-lined, those pieces of data right there that all merge together that have a significance on an outcome, are those APIs open to have a bi-directional communication, yes or no? And I can tell you right now, most of them are not. I think I know their first steps and their approach is to get their platforms developed, kind of like the first OSs that we see in our electronics. And then from there, they say, okay, now we're going to open it up for our devs to be able to interact and have a better experience. The experience on the healthcare side, the interoperability between all the different platforms that are inside, I would say, Gosh, I don't even know if you would know this one, but what would say? How many different OSs would be inside of a hospital? About a thousand, maybe (laughs) eight (laughs) hundred.
1: I don't know; it's that many. But there are there are a bunch of different operating systems or versions of operating systems running on different medical platforms inside of a facility. Yeah, I'll grant I'll grant that. And And then having
0: and then having the 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 code to be able to intertwine all of them together for a readable report or a proper analytical point of view so they know how to make a predictive real-time decision in corrective care
1: well this goes right? back to this this goes back to the ability to you know for, of data liquidity and the, the ability to have the information if you're if you're generating the information to export that information into a standardized format there are societies for that we have hymns for that. There are associations like CMI that work exclusively to drive companies into interoperability. Matter of fact, it is the center, CMI stands for the Center of Medical Interoperability. So if you are a medical company and you're not discussing interoperability with these folks and you're not looking at standardization of your output of of information. And on some level you are because between for adverse event reporting to the government, which is mandated uh, for CMS and and others, you, you have to have this. So if you are providing reports in standardized format for other organizations, why are you not doing it for your patients? Why do you why do you care so much about just the governmental organizations that could possibly penalize you, as opposed to the outcomes of your patients, who are well? Isn't mm-hmm. it the reason That's you're a great in business? Point. Yeah. Is is that not the reason you're in business?
0: Or I've always and I've said this on, on every recording of the podcast so far is not a political show <laughs> because it's really easy to go down that it's very easy to go down that government healthcare rabbit hole, and uh, the aim is to make sure that we're talking. At what's really going on inside that healthcare black box that everyone knows exists. We, we, sure, they no, they, want, they want to get reimbursed, which is the bottom line and, and right. they should, and they, it's part of the business because there's people to employ and take care of and there's jobs and everything else that aligns with it. But at the end of the day, what really needs to be the main focus is if there is a preventable death or preventable disease, or if you're going to expand someone's life, that is the goal. Always.
1: Exactly. And like Dr. Woods has told us over and again, you know, he's a fantastic man. If we can reduce all cars harm and we are talking about small numbers, there are hundreds of millions of us and there is very few instances of that. But even if it's a small instance, it's too many. Right. It, we are. It, it could be your daughter, your wife, your sister, your mother, your brother, your your father, you know, something, you know, someone out there who means something to you. It, we should all look at our jobs and what we do as influencing the the welfare of everyone around us, not just because it's going to help me in particular, but everyone. You know, around us, it it just doesn't. It, for me, it's almost unfathomable that you wouldn't think about that first,
0: right? The PSO, or what is a PSO as a patient safety organization? What does that mean for consumers? What does that mean for healthcare providers? What does that mean for the industry? I know a little bit about it, but I want to hear from the perspective of someone who understands data intrinsically and understands the ramifications of how it's implemented into that dynamic?
1: Well, first of all, when we talk about the spaces that we work in, we we work in the perioperative spaces. We are in a high-risk area where there's tons of expertise that goes into putting the spaces together and, of course, a lot uh, of expertise in order to run them. And everyone that's there, specialized training, specialized skill sets, and the like, and when a patient goes in for whatever procedure they're going in for, they sign off uh, on a bunch of documents, tell it, saying that they understand the risks that are involved. And their outcome, of course, is the the goal of everyone that's there. Everything we've said so far, we've talked about, you know, whether we we didn't intend, <laughs> as it were, to say that one company mm-hmm. or another is keeping this in, in a you know, in a silo to harm anyone. The reality is, is they are in business and this is how business is conducted in this space. When we look at patient safety organizations or if you are a certified patient safety organization, the, you are giving a facility the capability of capturing more information that would not necessarily get into the patient record and allowing them to use it to triage cases and we're not looking at cases where there were adverse outcomes. We're looking at all cases. And hospitals that work with PSO organizations are given an umbrella coverage to allow them to collect an immense amount of information that doesn't necessarily go into the patient record and improve upon their care. You know, their care tactics, their care strategies uh, for their for their patients and for their their care population. PSO organizations themselves, or give a tremendous amount of resources and advice to uh, healthcare organizations to improve, whether it's efficiencies for a particular type of procedure, or it could be um, reporting of certain surgical events that could have adverse effects. We can look at surgical site infections you know, as uh, patient safety information that doesn't necessarily, you know, cause, it it could cause harm, could not. We can say, okay, a patient had an infection, they had to have an extra course of antibiotics, they got better, everything was okay. Well, we could help them analyze why uh, that occurred. Was it, uh, uh, was it specific devices? Was it a, uh, an individual uh, not cleaning up properly or it could have just been an environmental issue that we were monitoring that would not have been captured by uh, the normal patient record. So there's, ton- there's a lot of information that we can collect and then we can provide back to facilities that then they could use to improve processes and help to improve their outcomes. Or you know, uh, strategies for efficient- to be more efficient uh, in the spaces.
0: I'm glad you brought up uh, Dr. Woods because he is a very dynamic guy and he is not even outside of the box thinker. Uh, He's a complete reformer. He really is. When I first had uh, really the privilege of meeting him and and listening to him talk and seeing the passion that he has and and the drive behind it, it, I was like, wow, there's something to be said here. Why do you think that not every company shoots for or looks for a PSO type of designation? I mean, an incredible piece, tag to have, if you will, but is an incredible piece of a backbone to the service you're providing back to a hospital. Why wouldn't more companies want to do this? And why haven't they done it? Because right now there's only a handful of them that do it. And I believe there's only one or two inside surgery or the surgical departments.
1: Right. And I think a lot of it has to do with the information that's being collected and the capabilities of the company on the back end to provide resources for um, a a particular facility. So you have to have internal resources and expertise to analyze the data and provide feedback to the facility to provide ongoing support for their process improvements. Whether you're collecting data, number one, you know, that's key in the, the type of data you're collecting, and then what you're doing to analyze said data and provide feedback. You know, so there's tons of standardized, well, I'll say tons. There are, there are several standardized assessments that you can use that can be manually processed, machine vision or machine learning process and then provide uh, consolidated feedback to the facility that tells them, hey, you are running up against this uh, particular issue during your cases, whether it's an environmental issue, it's a process issue, or it could be a supply issue uh, that they have that they need to improve upon so that the flow of the cases are better and that the some you know, particular uh, at-risk patient doesn't have to be under anesthesia for X amount of time or any, any longer than they have to be. So there's tons of little things and new that you would need to collect in order to provide that. And most companies that go into the facility, they have their device and this is what they do. And let's not single out anyone in particular, but let's just say I've got a widget and this widget provides this particular service. So whether it's an endoscopic system, it's a insufflation device or whatever, it does what it does. And if I'm not collecting any data and I'm not putting into a central repository and I'm not telling you what this data is supposed to uh, do for you then how am I supposed to provide any feedback for you? So it's a special kinds of companies that can aggregate information, put it together, and then provide specialized information that will help you to improve your processes and ultimately improve patient outcome. And not everyone can do it.
0: Agreed. Agreed. I I guess, what is the process? Is it complex? Is it not complex? I I know who oversees that process. Uh, The the federal government have a a huge hand in this. What's the benefit of it all?
1: Yeah, so the federal government has a branch called the AHRQ, and you can look them up at ahrq.gov, that oversees quality and health improvements. And their process for becoming a PSO-certified organization is rather lengthy. It's extensive. There are lots of certifications or or attestations that you need to provide uh, concerning data security, uh, data management, management and training of your employees, contracts with uh, third parties, contracts with hospitals. Uh, that you're going to or for, for the services you're going to provide. And then, of course, the data management and what your actual program is for improving quality and patient outcomes in a particular area of the facility. So whether it's surgery, outpatient, you know, outpatient rehabilitation, emergency department, you know, et cetera, you have to have a primary focus when it comes to certifying. Uh, as an as a pso uh, patient safety organization and there are several documents it, it takes a lot of reading <laughs> I've, my personal experience on Sounds just like the it. data side just the data side and the cloud services side it, it was a, a lengthy process to get up to speed on where we needed to provide information for the for the government and then of course you know alter your systems in order to provide information in a specific way so we talked about standardized reports you know etc there are tons of of it, there's there's a lot of information that you need to provide in a standardized way back into the the PSO and to the AHRQ. Not mandatory, but if you as a patient safety organization, if you are really truly here to benefit everyone, being able to being able to have data liquidity in your system to put those standardized reports out and provide them back to the general public, you know, it's phenomenal for you. It's de-identified data, it, it really helps provide better information for all of healthcare and should be a point of anyone trying to achieve PSO status.
0: Hmm. Wow. I didn't know it was that involved to do that. And so what would you say the normal length of time is to accomplish something like this?
1: Uh, well, uh, anywhere from six months to a year, Wow, you know, easily six time. months to a year. And, you know, of course there was, uh, there was a lot of investigation prior to just the start process, uh, of it. Uh, when I started the PSO process with our, current company or the the company i currently work for it it was late last year it was december and it didn't come through until recently so we're looking at uh what eight months almost of just uh, preparation information uh, documentation and you know final depositions with the uh, with the hrq um
0: at the end of all this what do you think is next? What do you think are the next milestones? What do you think is next that's going to happen? What do you think our roadblocks are going to be? Where do you think our first successes of an adoption of data, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence based algorithms? Where do you think we're going with this? I, I, what are the next steps I think that have to be made in your point of view for the market to really change and to adopt? And I know we, we both know it's a slow moving market space. We, we We get that. But how do we how do we? get to where we know it will go? What needs to be done?
1: I I always point to the end user first. And we have several stakeholders inside of any facility that we work with. There are technicians, there's biomedical engineering, there are the practitioners, and, you know, of course, there's high-level management that needs to be educated on what it is that we're providing and how we're providing it. There are certain risk management structures inside of facilities that will push back on the recording and documenting of the information that we're trying to capture. The benefits of the information that we're trying to capture, of course, is to help improve patient outcomes ultimately, but will also improve efficiencies, give better insight into uh, you know the daily operations of the facility and specific locations, and you know ultimately help to improve care. And that's not just improving care because we got you through faster or we made it cheaper, but we can help to improve either nurse practitioners uh, or surgical practitioners or even the tech folks in the room. So from a non-technical skills aspect to a technical skills aspect, whether it's robotics, it's laparoscopic, uh, it's open cases, there are tons of things that we can analyze and bring to uh, the fore for individuals. So there's a lot of benefits in the different areas that we're, we're going to be touching, but we need to educate those folks on what they are because we have spent an enormous amount of time creating fear on their side that anything that gets recorded, anything that comes back to you as peer review is bad. It's dangerous. It could cause you to you know, lose your livelihood or your, your ability to practice. We need to get over those issues, and we need to be able to provide them some sense of security that the information that we're getting is not going to be used against you negatively. You right. know, there's, a lot of that, there's a lot of that deep suspicion that information, it, you know, while information wants to be free, information that gets out usually is bad then what if that means it's bad for me, and that's going to negatively impact me. Right. Well, information can also be good, and hey, if you say you're the best, and here's the data to quantify it, then guess what? You're at the top of the heap. You're yeah. you're, you're you're that person.
0: The people that we're trying to protect and, and the organization that we're, we're trying to protect here through a PSO-type designation, I guess, is there a a lawyer representation are the lawyers brought into the conversations. They understand what everyone's trying to accomplish and achieve so we can have better outcomes because realistically, if, if someone's going to try to sue someone, let's say a, a particular practitioner, a surgeon, or if someone's going to try to sue a healthcare institution at large, I think that I, I think that would be a, just a natural progress to bring someone into That discussion and say, hey, look, like this is what we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish. When I purposely, I don't believe any healthcare provider tries to go out and tries to cause patient harm or has, you know, I I think that there it happens by mistake or there's just things that they could miss because of just they're tired. They really it comes down to the simplest things that they're tired and they're overworked. Do you think that's part of the discussion? Has it happened? Will it happen?
1: Yeah, no. I think from a legal standpoint, and you know, I'm not a lawyer. Surrounded by a lot of them, but uh, I'm not a lawyer. The from a legal aspect, hospitals' risk management and their their lawyers are constantly talking to us. And of course, they from from an IT standpoint, IT and IT governance policies are handed down and design You know, in concert with the the regulations that are out there, and we have to navigate those or that risk posture that a facility has. So you walk into one facility and you're capable of recording anything you want to, and there's another facility where if you wanted to bring in a tape recorder from 1989, uh, you're not going to be able to do that. It's just absolutely impossible. There, you you. They'll say no. They'll turn you. They'll turn you away. Convincing them that it's for their benefit and bringing them forward so that they can access more data, have more visibility and more insight is really it's a, it's a specialized skill. There are, there are a few people. You know, you've got CIOs, you've got CEOs, you've got directors of perioperative services, you've got chief medical officers, uh, chief uh, informatics officers. You have now healthcare informatic nurses. Uh, that are that are in place in facilities and quality officers. You know, there's a chief medical officer, chief quality officers there that understand that continuous improvement, like in other industries, is part of the process. And while CME credits and all of the other things that they do to you know, improve their skills and stay up to date on you know, what's happening don't necessarily mesh with what The PSO organization tries to do are with people, people who are analyzing this specific data are trying to do for hospitals and for practitioners in general. And it really is a large education for for them. Lawyers as part of the process where uh, business associates agreements have to be signed and other uh, documentation uh, needs to be set forth about what's being collected, how it's used and when it expires. All of it has to be taken into account whenever you go into a facility and say, hey, look, we would like for you to tell us everything so that we can tell you how to get better. That's what we're asking when we walk in. It's not like they came to us for therapy. We're going to them with the therapy tool and we're saying, hey, we can help you be better and here's how we can help you be better. Are you open to allowing us to provide, one, the benefit of a repository of information that is non-touchable from a legal standpoint and allowing us to provide you feedback on that and you provide us feedback on it so that we can all grow together and improve the profession of medicine.
0: Got it. Well, look, I don't want to keep you much longer. We've been talking for a while. We've covered a lot, but I do have one last important question for you. What's your final word? What do you have to say?
1: Well, look, information wants to be free. It wants to flow from point A to point B and it needs to. And what we have to do as practitioners in this area, where it's data science, uh, medical device manufacturing, controls, and you know, healthcare delivery or being part of the healthcare delivery model, is to make it easy for people to understand and grasp what we're doing and why we're doing it. If I can save you five minutes, I'll save you five minutes. If I can save you an entire day, then let me help you save as much time as possible so that you can deal with the things that really matter in your job, which is not taking care of information, but taking care of the patient. You know, so ultimately, when I approach my job every day and I'm talking to potential clients, I'm talking to uh, data warehouse folks, I'm talking to the IT teams the security teams, I want to make their lives easier. I have a lot of people invested in the approach to information that, oh, this is going to be difficult. Well, let's not make it difficult. Let's not be difficult about it. Let's create systems that adhere to open standards, work interoperatively, and continue to excel you know, in the ways that we wanted to, which is to bring people up, lift people up, allow them to do their jobs better, and let them take care of who they're here to take care of, the patient, not your tech. Right. not your things. Oh, you no, know we need. That's, that's it.
0: We we need Steve Jobs to come back and create a home button for the healthcare market.
1: <laughs> oh my God, has it been has it been eight years? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would that would be cool. ideal, right? Cool. Well, listen, uh, Tom, I thank you very much. This was uh, this was great, and uh, thanks all for those who joined us online and listened. And we're uh, signing off. Thanks again. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. I wanted to take a minute to thank everyone for joining us today on Healthcare 360. It was my honor to have on the show my friend Mr. Tom Soley to talk about his personal and professional healthcare experiences in the new artificial intelligence data-driven healthcare market. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoy the conversation, please share this podcast and give us a review. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or anywhere you enjoy listening. If you want the conversation to continue, you can find us on Twitter at HC360 Podcast or HealthcareTurnkey.com. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess with Healthcare 360. See you next time.